At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. This is Amaya Scarity, partnered QED Investors, and today I'm going to bring you backstage into the magic that drives startups of all sizes. In this world, the most powerful force in the industry is summarized in the simple phrase, product market fit. Google it. You'll find endless blog posts defining it, giving advice on how to find it, admonitions not to take it for granted. But here's the secret. Product market fit is a kind of magic. My view is that product market fit is a kind of a key that unlocks super fast growth. It's what happens when customers are so happy with what you've created that they can't stop talking about it. It's an answer to the question, why couldn't XYZ big tech firm do this exact same thing? It's an answer to the question, why would any customer buy from a business that barely exists? Product market fit is the design that makes rockets launch into space, not just explode. Io Omodula was the product manager on one of the most important fintech products of the last decade, Square's Cash App. He's now the head of product at one of the most important consumer healthcare companies, Carbon Health, and he occasionally finds time to write the most insightful commentary on the structure and nature of fintech. I read an essay by Io in the start of 2020 and instantly made becoming friends with him one of my top 2020 goals. And now he's generously agreed to come on the show and share some of his wizardry with us. Io, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so many of our listeners, they're policymakers. They're people in D.C., they're in capitals across the world, they're in finance and other, in other contexts. So can you start with the basics? What is this product that people are talking about? It's <laughs> a good question. So, so the way, a way to think about this very tactically is you probably have a chair in your house, like the one that you're sitting on. Yeah. Some person or some group of people somewhere far away got together one day and and said hey we want a chair that a person can sit on for eight plus hours per day um that maps to their needs while they're sitting in front of a computer doing work sitting in front of a typewriter typing things writing what have you and they came up with a bunch of ideas they implemented some they iterated and they ended up with shipping probably thousands of of versions of the chair that you're sitting on that is that just is, is an easy, relatable way to say like what a product is. It's just the the output of a thing that you tactically as a customer can say, I want that thing. Um, I want that thing. I want that thing. And then, you know, you, you can say the same thing in software, but software is obviously less tangible and, and 
product in that context, uh, in the software context, probably expands to not just the object because the object is a living thing that actually changes even long after you buy it, which isn't true for a chair, um, but it's the experience of that thing. And, and in a way, you as the customer and the group of people who are developing and iterating the software, like it, for, when you buy, when you download and start to use Instagram, you're in a kind of weird relationship with the people who make it. <laughs> Is it fair to say, from, from your perspective, I love the idea of a bunch of people making a bunch of choices, right? So, yeah. so product is sort of the sum total of all the choices that got made from idea to experience. Continuously. Continuously. Yeah, so, yeah. so this, this idea of continuous, I love the, the chair versus software because you're right. My, I am in a relationship with a bunch of people whose names I don't know at Instagram. Yeah. They know your name. Um, and uh, and so, right, right. They they know my name exactly. <laughs> so there's some interesting power dynamics in product. Um, yeah. But but this this kind of puts a spotlight onto you and your experience as a product manager in this world. So so as a product manager, you're kind of sitting on top of a maybe endless series of tiny choices about your consumers and the software. So what is the what does the day-to-day look like of a product manager? A few things. So so a lot just depends on what stage the company is and the particular product and what what your objective is as a company. In the very early stage, it looks like there's a a, a for any particular problem that you're trying to solve, there's a wide variety of solutions you could take to solve it. Some of those are just obviously bad. <laughs> um and some of those are some of those are obviously bad, and then some of those are obviously good but ruinously expensive. Mm, and yeah. a lot of the work is and ruinously expensive. Like it might be financial, it might be in terms of um, some dimension of the experience. Like it, that could be. It, th- there are just many things that could be. And so, a lot of the job is um, trying to get to a crisp, as crisp an understanding of what the prospective customer needs and cares about and and again this will all depend on the state of the company so like if you're if you're an early stage company you're probably trying to um discover the right mix of faster better higher quality materially lower cost relative to the other things that people use to solve the problem if you're at a very mature company like you know the kind of thing a person at a startup company that makes webcams versus at Apple optimized for there is some overlap, but like the, the bigger the distance between the company stage and the company objectives, um, the bit, the less the overlap between what their jobs are. But a, right. like a lot of it is just like trying to arrive at the outcome that balances your resource constraints with your customer needs. That sounds yeah. so generic, but it's just, it's, no, it's, it, well, it's the most well, abstract so I, way I can describe it. But it is, it, this is the part that I think makes it like wizardry. <laughs> because ultimately the result of making those choices perfectly is incredible growth and this kind of amazing Assuming trust. you're working on a problem space that matters enough. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. So, so right. You could have a brilliant product that <laughs> nobody, nobody cares, cares about. about. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Okay. So, so, so let's imagine, but, you know, I think you and I both, you know, in fintech and in other spaces, we're working on project problems that are important. People's money, people's health. These are important problems. So, so if you get it right, you conquer all sorts of objections. I've never heard yeah. of this company. Uh, who's going to do this? Why should I give you my data? And so right. there is, there is a, there's a kind of wizardry in that, you know, startups don't convince people to give them their data. They offer them an experience they can't get elsewhere. And because that experience is so either tantalizing or satisfying, they end up, you know, getting into a relationship with tiny yeah. companies. And, and it's, it's an amazing engine in a certain way. But, but that's why I think this wizardry concept is, is, in, is kind of interesting to me. When you are part of a project that's really working and you've been lucky enough or good enough to... Um, to be part of those projects, uh, do you feel the the wizardry? Like, does it does it feel like magic, or does it feel like just hard work grinding away every day? Um, <laughs> a little bit of both. I've never I've never thought of it in in terms of wizardry. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. This may be a bad. I think, I think I think it feels there. I would say there are like two separate things. There's a there is a very special thing that I think is worth protecting when a team gets in flow together and is, and, you know, like the, the way that I think about it at Carbon and we, we used to think about it at Cash App is, you know, you have like trains and like a train that's just like moving is, is a team that's shipping and you can put more and more ambitious things on those tracks. Um, and, and a train that's like a team that has flow and has momentum is not the default state of like when you just bring a random group of people together, it doesn't immediately result in in a team that has momentum. And so yeah. that so there there's a part that's that's the part probably that is very easy to enjoy in the moment. And then there, and and there's a part that you I think can really only tell in hindsight, which is that you were right. Which is it's we got this team together, you know, they got in flow, they worked on something that was really important. They made a bunch of choices and they were right. And they were so right that many more customers and everybody else working on that problem chose them. Yeah. And you just can only really know that after all the customers have chosen you. Right. <laughs> right. So, so take us back to some of those early moments. Like was there a moment when, you know, someone called you up and said, Hey, I, I want you to work on a thing. We're going to call it the cash app. When did you, when did yeah. you first get involved? Yeah. Um, so Cash App existed before, like the very first time I heard of, of Cash App, I was working on a startup that no longer exists um, with some siblings and some friends. And the, and, you know, in, in, so like at the time I was, I had just come out of Y Combinator. I think this was uh, at some point in 2013. And, the Square team had shipped this product called Cash App that was in a way to email money. And that was the first I heard of it. And then I actually joined in, and I'm pretty sure that was October, 2013. And then I actually joined in May, 2014. And so when I joined Cash App, May, 2014, the team was about 12 people. Uh, we didn't have a mobile app yet. We were just like an email money app. Um, and I joined to work on what at the time we called like our platform, which was a way to commercialize the concept of, push to debit payments. Yeah. And so, um, 
I, I love the the idea, which is so simple and so resonant, which I think even today people are are chasing, which is email money. Yeah, right. It it, it does. It speaks to an insight um, that 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 captures people's attention. And so, from a you know a team of twelve people, what were some of the early challenges in in you know bringing it to mobile in in br- building it to scale? At, at a certain point, this starts just taking off, and that must have created immense stress as uh, as your choices were were rewarded by by people choosing to to use them. Yeah, so I, I will say it never it never felt like like, and, and I think this is still true for the team today. At every moment in time, we always felt like we could be we could be bigger and grow faster. <laughs> that feels so, like a, a very classic startup mindset. It, it, no matter how fast you're growing, it still feels like you could grow faster and be bigger. I don't know. I feel like everybody thinks that. I, I, I've just never not thought that. <laughs> um, but the, I'd say like the, I, I, there were a few categories of challenges. There were some challenges where. I think a, a very typical like building software product type of challenge, which is like of these range of choices, which one do we pick next along like growth, margin, revenue, monetization, um, et cetera. So that there's just, I think that's like just every business has to kind of deal with that. Uh, there was a second category of challenges, which was around the ecosystem. So like at the time when we started cash app, the core idea was that, you could build a payment network that primarily relied on debit cards as the instrument. And that would give you faster payments than anybody else at lower cost than credit. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously quite threatening to many very, very large, like multi-hundred billion dollar players in the ecosystem. Um, so, so I'd say there was a category that was, how do you just navigate the ecosystem in a way that where you get to live long enough to be proven right or wrong? as opposed to just dying because somebody pulls the rug out from under you. Um, and, and you can think of that as like, you know, our bank partners, Wells Fargo, Ch- uh, Chase, uh, our network partners, Visa MasterCard, and then to a lesser extent, the um, uh, state money service business regulators, um, yep. and to a much lesser extent, federal regulators. Um, and then, Actually, I'd say those are probably the, the two big categories. And I think the, the last I would say also is just um, you always in advance, like everybody has ideas about like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if, insert idea here. Um, and we had this, we had many of those. And one of them was, wouldn't it be so cool if you could just like move money, if I could make money available to you instantly and, and have it be fast and convenient and the third category is like along which axis were we right about like along which like when we would ask the question, wouldn't it be so cool if in which cases were we correct? You know, may, maybe you guys just made all the right choices, but but did you have lots of experiments that didn't work? Yeah, we did. We, we definitely had lots of experience, experiments that didn't work. I can't tell how much of this was just like the time in the world that we inhabited versus our specific contribution to it. But a thing that, a, a characteristic that was true of most of the things we continued on was there were always, and this sounds like so self-evident when you say it, but there were always like these embers that you could 
in hindsight, the more likely a particular uh, direction was to be successful, the more branches it opened. And there, there were mm. just definite like sort of features and functionality that like felt like they kind of closed branches. Um, and so uh, like, or, or that you would look and you'd be like, oh, that's kind of cloudy. So like the example I would give is the moment when we decided, hey, we were going to lean far more into the consumer banking angle, the consumer financial angle versus the merchant services angle as Cash App, we kind of like looked at the merchant services angle. And this was before PayPal had split off from eBay. And we're like, all right, if we go this merchant services route, we'd be building stuff that's more like Square. And what else is like Square? PayPal. And what else is like that? Maybe Stripe. But what else is like that? It just felt kind of like a closed window. But if you look at the consumer financial services angle, there's like in America, five to 10 companies that provide consumer financial services that are worth over $100 billion. It was right. just like, so, so you, you're just like, oh, there's like so many directions you can go with it. And it's actually so absurdly deep. And, and the, you know, if you think of what did it take for Bank of America, Chase and Wells Fargo to reach the scale that they reached today was like hundreds of, like almost a hundred years and hundreds yeah. of acquisitions. And could we compress that into like a decade? <laughs> right, right. So you were, you were faced with this idea that you really were looking at a map and you were saying how many different roads, how many different yeah. cities, how many different territories are open on this map. And yeah. it turned out that consumers were, were actually really happy with that promise, that idea that you said, hey, I'm going to go do something new. And they said, oh, that sounds really cool. We want to come with you on that journey. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Did it, um, you know, one of the questions that zooming out from product to just being an employee of of fantastically successful companies um what did it what did it feel like to be part of you know square now block uh as it grew so big did that create different pressures or were you just you know sort of so focused on your team your product your day to day that the kind of, oh my gosh, I'm quote unquote on a rocket ship, uh, you know, didn't, didn't come front and center in your, in your mindset. I think at cash app, it was always, you know, you, you, you never forget like the mothership or whatever. So like, it was obvious, obvious to work with square, but I do think we had a lot of existential years when mm -hmm. it just wasn't like, even though at a, as a team, we had various levels of conviction, but we had conviction. It wasn't necessarily true that the rest of Square had it. <laughs> um, a and B, um, like in in hindsight, to me at least, it's so obvious that the world, that like somebody was, that there was a hole in the world that somebody was going to fill. It just happened to be the case the cash up filled it. But at the time, like you, you can just in, in any moment, even now as I think about the stuff that I do today, you always just have to like, hold possible the the possibility that you might just be wrong right this is in other words if you think about product market fit as a lock and a key um you're building a key but then you have to go find the lock yeah and it's possible that there's no lock that matches the key you built i mean not just that it's possible that there's a lock that matches the key that you built and like there's nothing behind the door or like you're opening at the wrong time there's just, like there are many many reasons why you might lose that have nothing to do with whether you built a good product and you're right. Like you might've capitalized it incorrectly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? At, at, at the end of the day, all of these things are 
just like people with families and incentives trying to do their best and make the best with the with the information they have and right on on short time frames on short time frames and while while in hindsight you you actually just have like access to a lot more depth and breadth of of information about what was happening in real time it's not like in, in in real time it's like you know like there were a few instances where a partner might have killed us <laughs> Right. Um, and, and that would have had, and, and probably somebody else in the world would have built the thing that we built eventually. Cause it, it like that idea had its time had come, but it just was eminently possible that we might die for many years. You know, just to, to zoom out for a little bit, um, you mentioned these two concepts, both of which I found really powerful and sort of led us to this conversation. One is the idea of permissionless issuing and, um, issuing is the idea that when you get a debit card uh, in fintech or when, or when you get a credit card, someone has to issue that credit card. They have to issue that financial instrument to you. Yeah. And currently, that's a very clunky process. So mm-hmm. even today, almost three years after you wrote the permissionless issuing, um, there is no such thing. Uh, you still need a very clunky process, a pretty long process to get someone to give you permission to participate in this debit card, credit card example. And then um, it ties very closely to the most recent essay, um, which which you and I were talking about, which is that every fintech sits on top of a bank. And um, those banks are the permission givers. Yeah. And that means that many fintechs will find that their their permission giver- Denied permission, yeah. Um, occasionally wants to deny, change that, yeah. you know, it might be a business choice. It might be a, a risk choice. It might be a fraud choice. It could be all sorts of choices. Um, but that this is an existential threat that sits underneath every fintech is Correct. who is giving me permission to access. And I think that's a frame which is um, very relevant to, to DC and to regulators. Um but it's it's super interesting to me that you came to it from the perspective of product investor watching uh, fintechs struggle with this challenge, and now you have this great perspective on how important it is for that uh, that permission to exist. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say, I'd say two things. One, I don't think it's quite true that permissionless issuing doesn't exist. There are a few companies that do a variant of it. It just doesn't exist in any way that you can scale beyond. Like it's very easy to step in the door. It's a lot harder to like explore the whole room or whatever, whatever the analog you want to use. So I, I think like to me that that's an improvement and actually solves for a lot of a lot of what I was struggling with was our process in 2015 and 2016 of actually trying to get a card issued involved like many trips and conversations with banks all over the country. The, the sort of banker is kind of looking at us and being like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, and and then starting to understand that there were all these constraints. And th- this is like one thing that really like I, I, I stuck with after going through that experience is everything is variable. Like almost there, there are so few things that you encounter where you're like operating at the limit of the laws of physics. There's just like, you know, some person or some group of people or some institution somewhere that made some choices and those choices shape the box that you're in and those choices with sufficient resources or a long enough time horizon are variable and i think like with with very few resources and a short time horizon 
a thing like permissionless issuing is super valuable to enable people to discover, hey, is this something that matters and makes sense? Um, and then with, with a super long time horizon, you can be like, hey, I want like my own bin, I want my own bank, I want to be able to switch banks, et cetera. You can, like, you can make whatever set of choices that you want. But on a short time horizon, um, like I think it's just, it's, I hate to use this word, but for innovation, it is super valuable to make it cheap and easy for people to try things so long as they're not breaking the law, breaking the rules or harming people or whatever. It's such a, an interesting pair of concepts. And, and I think people, you may know, I am an investor in and on the board of a company called Treasury Prime, which operates in this space and is, is very much trying to create a world where fintechs can work with multiple banks, banks can yep. work with multiple fintechs. Um, so this is something I've thought about a lot as well. And um, what, what I think you're pointing out is that there's a place for experimentation, which I link back to your question, wouldn't the statement, wouldn't it be so cool if? Yeah. And then your essay about bank portability is really about scale. If this is working, how do you give it resilience? How do you give it flexibility? How do you give it optionality? How do you give it more paths yeah. that it can go How do you down? make sure your thing doesn't die in a freak accident? <laughs> how do you make sure that your thing doesn't die in a freak accident? And I think what we, what we see in the current fintech market is... Um, the the rocks that have un been underneath the surface are <laughs> right they're they're way more present now yeah and and so it really i think your essay really resonated because it's this moment where some people just had something that wasn't working but other people had have things that are working and now the risk of running into rocks has just gone way up because yeah. the, they're, the they're, they're caught in the blast radius yeah they're caught and so how do you think um, policymakers should think about the balance. I mean, this is not a world where you've, you know, spent yeah. a bunch of time making trade-offs. But, but what what advice would you give to policymakers from the perspective of someone who's tried to do these new things? Are there are there any things that that, that you would say to them? So, so I'd say I think the first caveat I'd say is like I'm just some guy with a very specific experience. So all of this comes from that. You know, if, if you if you discard it, I won't be offended. I think, like in, I, I've had a few interactions, both in in fintech and healthcare, where we were on the other side of a conversation with a regulatory or enforcement body, federal's in some cases, state in some cases, um, and I, I don't I don't say this as a dig, but a thing that, like my perception was definitely that, very frequently they didn't really care about the specifics about the like specific thing you're doing. It was like, I, I remember um, having an, interac an interaction where like a bank partner was between us and the FDIC and it wasn't about us. It was about like stuff that the bank was doing. And um, we desperately wanted to explain, <laughs> hey, like here actually is what's happening under the hood. And it was very much like the way your thing looks, looks like this in the spreadsheet, so change it. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, and, and I, I insert all the caveats because I just have to imagine that like the, the policymakers and enforcement folks are like very, very busy people. And I don't know what the rest of the things that they're looking at. They're like, hey, there's this weird fraud thing happening. I just have to focus on it. Like it, it's hard to tell from the outside looking in, but I think, and, and I think I, this actually is true for a bunch of services that have happened in the last year. Like they are providing value to consumers and small businesses. 
they are providing services. They're providing like what I think of as, as exclusive content, things that those consumers of small businesses either cannot get elsewhere or cannot get elsewhere at the price, you know, at the price value sort of ratio that works for them. And whatever sort of metric that you're looking at, it does destroy a bunch of consumer surplus when you pull the rug out from under them. Yeah. Um, now, I, I also I also think like on the flip side, like they're dealing with people like FTX, so like they're probably just busy actually. So I, one of the challenges that you're describing is this idea that fintechs have, and and frankly startups of all sizes, just have an uncomfortable interface with Washington D.C. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about that experience and whether there are things that you're seeing or that you think DC could do to kind of, as you said, care more about the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think, so so like in my mind, when I think of how the way most fintechs and most startups prior to gaining massive scale, when they have to have sort of these government and, and lobbying teams, um, interact with regulatory or enforcement bodies is primarily through whoever their financial service services. Um, I'm trying to think of there's there's a specific word. The regulatory well, the sponsor bank or the partner, sponsor bank exactly, could be, yeah. could be any different frame. Yeah, exactly. Sponsor bank, sponsor broker, like j- just sort of depending on the kind of instrument you're dealing with. Um, and I think that that is a consequence of. Fintech being so young, like actually fintech at this scale being so young, because like if you think of the biggest fintechs, generally are as big or much bigger than the banks that sponsor them, <laughs> right? Like right. along every axis, people, resources, like technical and regulatory sophistication, etc. And I think that there is some dead weight loss in the regulat the regulatory or enforcement teams and individuals having to go through the sponsor entities in order to interface with these programs that are are already at massive scale. And I think that's just a choice. Like we just happen to have chosen backed ourselves into this corner in America In many parts of the world, it doesn't work this way in many parts of the world. Like if you're building a financial services product from day one, you have a direct interface into, into like some sort of simplified regulatory framework. I think in, in the UK, it's like the e-money license for banking. There's something similar to that in like Germany and, and the rest of Europe, et cetera. And I do think it actually like causes, like perhaps it's just a form of regulatory capture and I shouldn't say the quiet part out loud, but I, I think it actually causes a significant amount of- Yeah, and I do think you, you can see efforts along a number of different dimensions, right? There's the Office of FinTech and the Office of Innovation and the regulators are are sort of trying, but but I think you're also right to say that there's a, a structural delicacy between yeah. the well, bank so. regulator dynamic and the fintech bank dynamic. And I think a lot of people who are engaged in those dialogues are very worried about crossing the streams. That, oh, why you know, is that? Well, I think the, um, the, the bank might be worried that the innovator won't be as buttoned up or polished. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're um, probably right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're probably right. And, yeah. and, I think, and I think even the fintech is, is worried about saying something that would undermine the bank. And so there, there's, a, there's a lot of um, complicated choreography that I think goes yeah. into these that, that can be. Well, but, but you realize that everything you said just relies on the bank continuing to be in between the two. And, right. and the yeah. bank, as we define it in the U.S. in the United States, is just a regulatory construct that we made up. 
We just made it up. We can make something else up. Other countries have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you heard it here first, the, the, make, the make it up version of, of financial innovation. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 like I say that kind of trite, but, but I think like every bit of policy that exists in every country was written by humans. Yes. They're not like yeah. the humans Whether who were 100 them, years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Or, or today. They're not the, the humans who wrote them. They were just like doing the best they could with the things that they knew. And that's true for us as well. We can't just like it is it is if you're invested with the power to like change a thing to, to something that, you know, is right and better than what exists before. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Well, that is, I think that's a great place to close. Aya. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, for coming by. This is terrific. Cool. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I hope listeners can hear how much fun Io is having and has had in his career building products that touch people's lives. What makes it fun for me is that Io has command of such high levels of abstraction that great products are like keys to unknown doors, and also of the mundane realities of business and startups. He reminds us that sometimes people just build experiences that consumers don't want, that regulators are legitimately busy people with too many things on their plates, that the teams who built any of the largest companies in this country were all just regular people with jobs and families and constrained choices. As I contemplate the wizardry of great consumer experiences, it reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. Of course, we should have some reverence for the power of a bank charter, for the laws and regulations that protect consumers, for the polished automation of a great app. But there's still a wizard behind the curtain somewhere. As Io said, finance is not operating at the limit of the laws of physics. Some people, somewhere, making some choices. So we shouldn't be afraid to say, wouldn't it be cool if we could change this? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.